White House released tear gas and fired rubber bullets at protesters in an effort to disperse the crowd for Trump's planned visit to the St. John's Episcopal Church. Leslie McSpadden, mother of Michael Brown, who was killed in a 2014 police shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, said in an interview that the lack of a police response was stunning. Quote, there was no shooting, no rubber bullets, no tear gas, she said. Quote, it was nothing like what we have seen, nothing like what we have seen. End quote. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 47 degrees and partly cloudy. In New York City, 40 degrees with clear skies. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns. Thanks for listening. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. You heard a special um, from Sansara Taylor, Sansara Taylor, 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 get it right, Reggie, Taylor. (laughs) And um, she is the host of We Only Want the World. She's usually on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And that's a joint production between WBAI and WPFW in Washington, D.C. It is now one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz-Martson. Stay tuned. Welcome back to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, a weekly show that delves into the issues dominating discussion in our city, our state, and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with my co-host, Jeff Simmons. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Celeste. Hey, Celeste. I'm sure, like you, I have been following the latest news out of D.C. today. I'm just appalled. I'm sure many of our listeners stayed up late like you watching the aftermath and the coverage overnight. Absolutely. I stayed up actually until the uh, the very end of the Electoral College proceedings. Just wanted to make sure that all uh, got squared away after a very, very tough, very distressing, certainly, day in uh, in the nation's capital. But we do have officially now a uh, new president-elect, Joe Biden. Uh, and we'll be talking about what happened in Washington in a little bit. But today's program, and we're going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover. Uh, you know, we always want to continue to focus on what's going on in New York. And certainly uh, the coronavirus pandemic is not going away. Uh, We have uh, more than 357,000 people in New York have already died, more than uh, 21 million cases uh, of COVID-19 in the United States uh, as of now. One of the things we're going to be focusing on today is uh, the response to the virus and how it continues to impact uh, people, including those who are currently incarcerated and what's being done about vaccines in prisons. Um, you know, so more broadly, uh, last year we did a special project to focus on how coronavirus affected us uh, as New Yorkers. And starting this week, Jeff and I are going to start revisiting some of the people we spoke to for that series. That was called New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. And the first person who spoke to BAI for that series was New York City Council member Danny Drum of Queens. And he told us about what he witnessed as the pandemic took hold of New York and also about some of the people close to him that he lost. So right now, we're going to take a listen back to that episode of New York in You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet. The battle against the virus has profoundly changed Americans' way of life. For some, it means death. WBAI is collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm. My name is New York City Council Member Danny Drum, and I represent Jackson Heights and Elmhurst in the New York City Council. 
I lost five friends just in one week alone, and it's been very difficult. Um, and I lost one of those people was um, somebody who was very close to me, a guy named Tarlick McNallis, who uh, helped start the St. Pat's for All Parade in Sunnyside, which was the alternative parade to the Fifth Avenue Parade, which banned LGBT people from marching for 25 years. Um, but fortunately, uh, in 2016, the parade organizers allowed us to uh, march. And uh, in typical Turlock fashion, um, he was allowed to be a uh, formation area marshal and help line up the Fifth Avenue parade. But that's the type of person that Turlock was, is that, um, you know, he um, would put down the sword um, and try to make peace. And uh, he will be greatly missed. Of course, all the other friends that I lost, the five other people, Lorena Borjas, a leading transgender right activist. Um, she was amazing. Father Chaco, the pastor of the local Episcopal Church here. Um, we're going to sorely miss all of these people. It's very difficult for me. Um, you know, I love Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. I came out uh, when I was 17 years old. And the first neighborhood that I knew that had a large LGBT population was Jackson Heights. And now I have the honor of serving as the uh, council member for this area. Uh, and so I've always loved Jackson Heights because they accepted me as who I am. And um, I take my responsibility as a council member very seriously. But as lucky as I am to serve the community, it is hard sometimes when I realized that it was five people that I lost within just, you know, not even a week, um, you know, I broke down a little bit because um, it's also a very personal thing. You know, I've been over to Elmhurst Hospital and I've seen people being pulled in, carried in, lined up outside of Elmhurst Hospital, not being able to get the services and help that they need. And that's very emotional and very draining as well. But these losses are more personal in that sense. So, um, you know, it's been difficult, but um, I'm, I'm honored to be able to represent my community. We are the epicenter of the epicenter of the virus in uh, the United States of America and probably the world. But this is going to spread. People need to take that very, very seriously. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how my friends got the virus. Just take it seriously please take it seriously this virus does not discriminate it's a killer and it's very tragic when it happens in some ways there's a silver lining in everything and in some ways this has really brought out the good in people this community is um, the most caring the most tolerant and the most loving community i've ever found and i get all types of good messages and uh, tweets and phone calls uh, emails just encouraging me to continue on and to hang in there. You know, sometimes when you're an elected official, it can be quite lonely. You only hear the complaints. But the good side of what's happened now is that I'm also getting a lot of compliments. So I'm grateful for that. Danny Drum represents Queens and the New York City Council. Stay tuned to WBAI for more installments of New York in Crisis, our coronavirus diaries, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. And now, as promised, we are ready to check back in with New York City Council Member Danny Drum of Queens, who joins us on the line. Uh, Council Member, welcome back to WBAI. Thanks an awful lot, Jeff. It's great to be back, and uh, it's good to be with you and Celeste, and you guys are doing a fantastic job. Um, I'm seeing your stuff all over the place, so congratulations to you. Thank you. And it's been wonderful to have Celeste back on full time with me. Uh, I know the answer to this because I'm your neighbor. But for our listeners, talk a little about the latest on what has been going on in your district as far as coronavirus. Because when Celeste spoke with you for the series, the city and the hospitals were getting seriously overwhelmed. Where do we stand now? Well, right now, we're not in very bad shape. I mean, we still do have a number of intensive care beds being taken by COVID patients at Elmhurst Hospital, but the last I heard is that they have about 177 ICU beds that they could still uh, give to uh, COVID patients. 
if need be. And thank goodness that hasn't happened. So that aspect of the um, pandemic um, and the way in which it hits this neighborhood is kind of calmed down. But what we still see here in the neighborhood is a tremendous need for food. Um, I live on 78th Street in Jackson Heights, and just down on the corner uh, is the little storefront church. And I see people lined up two blocks long um, every week, uh, once a week, to get a box of food from uh, this church. So I've been trying to supply many of the organizations in the district with food, and I've been doing it with um, Grow New York City and with Med Council. Um, but we're running out, and um, so... In terms of uh, my role as the finance chair of the city council, um, I'm pushing to get uh, about $25 million more into the budget so that we can begin providing uh, these organizations uh, with some money for food. Uh, that is really the biggest need here in the community right now. So, Council Member, thank you again for, for joining us and for rejoining us after uh, we did that interview um, about coronavirus last year. I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, to hear more about what's going on in the district. Sounds like things are, are somewhat improving. Uh, I'm curious to know what you think about how the mayor and the governor are doing uh, in terms of handling the spread of the virus, especially after the holidays, and also now looking towards getting the vaccine out to New Yorkers in a, in a, a quick way in a fair way. Sure. Well, it's not happening in a quick way, and that's a big problem. Uh, the fighting between the two of them is also a problem. Uh, I, need they, I think they need to put their egos aside and begin to work together and get this uh, vaccine out to folks that need it. Um, I believe that we are still in phase 1A of distribution, which is really basically for essential workers and for medical workers. Um, I believe that they're soon going to be going to... Um, Phase 1B, um, and, and Phase 1B is, um, uh, you know, uh, other, other essential workers, more, more like the cops rather than the firefighters, um, the second level um, essential workers. And then Phase uh, 1C, uh, and Phase 1B, by the way, also includes those who are 75 years and older, and Phase 1C would be for those who are 65 and older, the elderly. Um, but... It's been slow. The rollout has been slow. Now, this morning I did see that they've added some sites uh, in the borough of Queens. Um, but, you know, this should be done 24-7. One of my colleagues in the city council, Mark Levine, uh, has been pushing the mayor, and I believe is holding a hearing on January 12th to get the city to um, have 24-7 uh, uh, vaccine distribution so that uh, people could come at any time of day or night. You know, the, the, the famous quote, the city never sleeps. Uh, and people would line up and people would be willing to come and get a vaccine at any time of day or night. So I think that that should be happening. Hasn't happened yet, but we need to go in that direction. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're talking about coronavirus in New York, the vaccine effort, and what's being done to stop the spread of the virus. Our guest right now, City Council Member Danny Drum. And uh, Council Member, uh, just to stay on that point for a minute, uh, we have been talking about the vaccine on the program, actually uh, specifically about some people who are not interested in getting the vaccine, who are skeptical of the vaccine, suspicious of it. Um, we had Hazel Dukes from the uh, NAACP New York State chapter uh, last uh, last program. But, you know, what are your thoughts on people who, even if they can get access to the vaccine, say that they're afraid to get it? They don't trust it. Yeah, I, I've heard that. And um, it's um, pretty large within the African-American community, especially. Uh, that sentiment, um, I think that, um, it, it, and it's understandable. I mean, African-American people have been used in experiments, uh, medical experiments, throughout the course of the United States history. And um, so the lack of trust for um, medical experts um, is, is waning. It's just, you know, it's, um, it's hard to get through sometimes to those communities. I saw um, like people like Gail King and uh, others, uh, African-American leaders, uh, urging people, though, to get the vaccine. Uh, one of the things that um, I hear often as well, I have a friend who's in, in prison in upstate New York, and um, he tells me that an awful lot of the, and, and they're mostly all brown and black um, 
uh, incarcerated folks uh, is that many of them would refuse the the vaccine if they were to get it, so uh, if they were to be offered it. So um, I think we have to do um, a public relations piece on it. We have to assure people that it's safe. We have to assure people that you know none of the conspiracy theories that are around it. Um, I've heard people. I've heard as far out things as far out as people saying they'll put a chip and then be able to trace your where you're going, your whereabouts. You know, um, but none of that is true. And um, this vaccine is, um, you know, something that will help not just the individual who gets it, but society in general from preventing the spread of the disease to others. So um, I intend to get it as soon as I possibly can, but I won't jump the line. But as soon as I can, um, I'm going to get the vaccine. And council member, you touched on this just a few moments ago. So we had wanted to talk about uh, some issues involving incarceration, but we have a regular caller here who has brought this up several times as well about what government's role would be in mandating or requiring that people who are in congregate settings, such as prisons, should they be required to, uh, to get vaccinated? And how do we balance that against a person's right to decide not to get vaccinated? Where do you stand on this? Thank you for that question. And I think the key word is required. Uh, I'm of the opinion that nobody should be required, quote unquote, to get it. I think that, um, you know, people should um, talk it through with their health care professionals uh, and with family members um, and uh, their loved ones about the benefits of getting the vaccine. And there may be, a, you know, a, a tough time convincing folks about that. Uh, and it's my understanding that we need about 80 to 90 percent uh, of folks getting the vaccine in order for the vaccine itself to be effective if, if we don't hit those numbers. So those who are incarcerated, and by the way, um, Jeff, criminal justice reform has been a big part of what I've worked on since I've been in the city council, you know, ending stop and frisk, the issues um, around Rikers Island, closing uh, Rikers Island, uh, the jail complex, um, Right now, I'm in the middle of a battle um, over um, ending solitary confinement. Um, but I know, and as I told you, my friend up in Riverview says that um, many folks would refuse. It. So we need to, to work with those folks. We need to get them to understand um, why it's important to do it and what the benefits would be to them and hopefully um, be able to get them vaccinated. I just don't want to say required at this point. Uh, Councilmember jumps slightly, uh, slightly off the vaccine, but since you did just bring it up, uh, we have a few minutes here. I just wanted to check in with you on uh, specifically that issue you've been working on about ending the use of solitary confinement in uh, New York City jails. Can you just uh, give us a thumbnail on where that stands right now? Is that is that going to happen? So, yes, my piece of legislation was heard um, in the um, Criminal Justice Committee uh, headed by um, Councilmember uh, Keith Powers. Uh, in the middle of December, um, you know, we had uh, numerous people come in and give testimony. So uh, we're going to take the testimony that was given and look at the legislation and many of the suggestions that were made. I know many of the advocates, the advocates for um, incarcerated individuals, um, have said that they want to make sure that there are no loopholes because the uh, city's Department of Correction is famous for finding loopholes in legislation. I wrote legislation originally um, just to get reporting on who was actually in solitary confinement. This is going back to, I guess, 2014 now. Um, And um, even that has been problematic to get. Finally, we are getting it, but initially it was difficult to get it. Um, So um, those are some of the things. There is controversy around how much out-of-cell time uh, the incarcerated individuals would get um, initially in my legislation, we said that they would get a minimum of 10 hours. The advocates are advocating for 14 hours out of cell time, and that would mean treating them as um, other um, incarcerated individuals at Rikers Island are as well. I personally support that. I'm going to fight for that. Um, I think that um, what we have to remember is that um, the overwhelming majority of people that are on Rikers Island have not yet been convicted of a crime. Uh, and so uh, it's just that they can't afford bail to get out. And so these are the poorest of the poor. Sometimes bail is denied by the judges, but that is not uh, a large percentage of the population. 
And there are some people who have been sentenced to uh, under a year at Rikers Island as well. Uh, but again, that's probably um, like a, a very small number of people. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers right now because the whole population at Rikers Island is down from its historical highs. There's been a, a, a somewhat of an increase just recently uh, and possibly related to bail reform. Uh, and, 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 you know, the New York State Legislature created bail reform about a year ago and then backtracked on it. And now uh, some people who would not have been incarcerated under the original bail reform are now being incarcerated. Um, and um, so that is presenting a whole host of other issues. I'm a person who does not believe that we should be really incarcerating anybody who doesn't necessarily present in a violent way, um, <laughs> especially during the COVID crisis, because you're giving them a death sentence. Nobody deserves a death sentence on Rikers Island by exposing them to COVID. So it's a whole complex bunch of issues, many issues that go on around that. Um, but we're going to move forward on this. And it's my objective that um, by the time I leave the city council next December 31st, we ha will have effectively ended solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is torture, and it needs to end in New York City. So, Council Member, we only have a few moments left, but uh, the topic of the day, what's been distracting a lot of us because we're so uh, emotionally affected by what we've witnessed happening in Washington, D.C. this week uh, with the Electoral College proceedings, can you just give our listeners your impression of what you witnessed and, and what you make of that when you consider the state of our nation? Sure. You know, yesterday when I uh, first learned about what was going on, I had a, um, a Zoom conference scheduled. I told my chief of staff, cancel it because I can't believe what's going on. And I was actually getting like feeling sick to my stomach from watching on television what was happening in uh, our nation's capital. Um, I am so glad today that both Senator Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have called on uh, cabinet members and others in the Trump administration to invoke the 25th Amendment to uh, force them or to take him out of office. Or they have also threatened that if they don't invoke the 25th Amendment, that they are going to impeach him again. And impeaching him again would prevent him from ever returning to public office in any way, shape or form. And I think that that's really a top priority at this point. But um, to see this uh, happen in our country, is it was predictable. And uh, my biggest question coming out of yesterday is why weren't there more arrests? How did people enter into, um, into, into the Capitol building? You can't get into City Hall. I mean, it's the Capitol. Nobody should be able to you know, violate that. And to see a Confederate flag flown in the Capitol building, which didn't even happen during the Civil War, is absolutely horrible. And finally, my last issue with this whole thing is that there were no police officers on the steps like there were during Black Lives Matter uh, protests. And uh, that is a huge question about what happened with those Capitol Police. Why was this allowed to occur? And I believe that they were in cahoots with the terrorists, okay, because they actually really are terrorists. And that is something that must be thoroughly investigated. And if, in fact, that can be proven, uh, then those uh, Capitol Police officers who cooperated or allowed them to break down the gates should be prosecuted as well. City Council Member Danny Drum, where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Sure. They can go to my website, which is Daniel Drum, D-A-N-I-E-L, Drum, D-R-O-M-M, dot -M, uh, com, or they can go to my council website, you know, Drum at New York City Council, um, dot gov. And um, or they can either um, email me at drum, D-R-O-M-M, -M, at council.nyc.gov, or just go to my uh, council website or leave a phone message. The phone number is 212-788-7066. And I uh, would love to hear from people. Great. Thank you so much, Council Member Danny Drum. Really appreciate you joining us today on Driving Forces. Thank you very much, Les, and thank you, Jeff.
So we uh, talked some about the issue of coronavirus and prisons with Councilmember Drum, that conversation. But obviously here on Driving Forces, we always like to go a little deeper into the issues. Uh, and as uh, Jeff mentioned earlier, in one of our recent programs, we had a caller uh, with a question about vaccination programs and the COVID situation, specifically in prisons. Uh, so, you know, we want to keep focused on that question because it does ultimately affect more than just the people uh, who are in these facilities, what is happening in prisons nationally when it comes to COVID-19? Should people in prisons and jails have to get vaccinated whether they want to or not? And how is that all going to work? So to talk about that right now, we're glad to be joined by Beth Schwartzapfel. She's a staff writer for the Marshall Project, and you may have also read her criminal justice reporting in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Mother Jones. She's won a lot of awards, and we are very happy to welcome you, Beth, to Driving Forces here on WBAI. Thanks for having me. So maybe just to start, tell us a little bit about this piece, which I found very impressive, very informative, that you worked on with a team about uh, sort of framing the situation regarding COVID-19 and prisons. Tell us a little bit about what you learned from your investigation. Right. So the Marshall Project's been working with the Associated Press from the beginning of the pandemic to collect uh, numbers from every state uh, prison uh, system around the country every week. And so uh, in doing that, we could track the number of COVID-19 infections and deaths um, over time. And what we see is that um, you know, there were spikes early on in the pandemic. There were spikes over the summer, but there, uh, the the number of COVID-19 diagnoses um, over the last couple of weeks has just blown all those previous numbers out of the water. Um, there's now been uh, more than 276,000 uh, COVID infections behind bars, and those are just the people that were tested. Um, we also know that there's a lot of undercounting because there's plenty of prisons that aren't doing uh, rigorous or regular testing. That's one in five prisoners, and that's compared to one in 20 people who have had COVID in the general population. And there's been uh, almost 2,000 deaths, COVID deaths among prisoners. Deaths are higher among a prison staff than among the general population, too. Um, so, you know, as with almost anything in prison, uh, if it's bad in the community, it's worse behind bars. And clearly, you just gave some alarming statistics. I mean, 276,000 infections, one in five prisoners. This is a national problem. Did you get a sense in your reporting about where in the country the problems are the worst? Um, absolutely. What we found is, in general, um, with COVID infections, where the infections are bad in the community, they uh, are shortly thereafter bad in prison. So, you know, we saw numbers in New York, for instance, um, during the surge over the summer um, in prisons that were uh, pretty staggering. Now uh, you see the highest rates in places like the Dakotas, um, where their COVID infections are uh, are out of control. Um, because we like to think about prisons as a kind of place apart, right? They're walled off from uh, from society, and even now. During COVID, they've restricted visits. They don't allow teachers in. In a lot of states, they're not allowing chaplains or even lawyers in. But still, correctional staff are going in and out every day. The, the guards who are guarding the prison are still going in and out every day. So if there's infections in the community, you can bet that not only are they going to enter the prison, but once they're in there, there's no social distancing. There's very limited access to soap. Um, in some places, Purell is even contraband. Um, it, the, the access to masks is spotty. And so you can imagine once an, an infection gets into the prison, it just it, it just spreads like wildfire. So in your reporting, and in case you're just joining us, this is WBAI New York Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're speaking to Beth Schwartzapfel from the Marshall Project about her reporting on COVID uh, in prisons nationally. Um, so Beth, in your piece, I just wanted to ask you about um, some of the pushback that you described, that you said that in some states there has been pushback to giving uh, vaccinations to people in prison early. So uh, who is that pushback coming from and what is their problem? Um, well, it's a it's a largely political issue, as you can imagine. You know, public health experts have uniformly said that if you want to control the epidemic uh, in the country at large, you have to control it in prisons for all the reasons we just talked about. It's, uh, the, it's so porous between prisons and the community that if you have an outbreak in a prison, inevitably it's going to bleed out to the community. So um, just as we have to prioritize people in nursing homes and other congregate settings, we have to prioritize vaccinating people in prisons if we want to control the pandemic. But of course, you always 
have those naysayers who say, you know, well, why should they get to go to college if I ha- if I can't go to college without paying for it? Why should they get the vaccine first before law-abiding people? And you know, you he- you you heard in the weeks after states were rolling out their vaccination plans, even supposed criminal justice reformers like uh, like the governor of Colorado said, you know, when the press started asking him about this, um, oh, no, there's no way that prisoners are going to get the vaccine before law-abiding people. Um, It's just a a political um, grandstanding kind of thing that can have pretty profound public health and, frankly, moral implications. And speaking about sort of some of the morality there, I did want to ask you about this. Um, you know, Jeff and I have covered politics, uh, been around politics for a long time. And so you hear about uh, these high profile or politically connected uh, prisoners getting out early or you know, going into home confinement uh, because of the threat of COVID-19. Maybe they have pre-existing health conditions or there's a, you know, um, there's a legal argument that their lawyers are able to to sort of, uh, you know, uh, wrangle there to to get them out. But, you know, how common is that really? And then I guess what um, BAI listeners would like to know is what are the chances of an average person uh, being able to take advantage of the threat of COVID-19 to get uh, some sort of waiver, say, for a, a early, early release or home confinement? The best I can say about that is uh, it's been the way we described it in, in the story uh, that we did with the Associated Press is that it's been slow and uneven. Um, I will say that there are some states that have made an effort to release people. Um, and we have seen, too, prison populations dropping for a number of other reasons, including, for instance, probation and parole departments are less likely to send somebody back to prison for a parole violation. Um, or the other thing we'll see is that county jails um, normally will just sort of regularly transfer, transfer people from the county jail to begin a prison sentence. Those prisons, those transfers have been stopped. So um, in some ways, you see prison populations uh, as low as they've been in quite a long time. Whether that translates into any one person actually getting out um, is pretty uneven, Um, especially in the federal system. um, More than 10,000 federal prisoners applied for compassionate release. And this is just by way of example, because every state has its own has its own system. Um, Less than two percent of them were approved. One hundred fifty six people were approved for release from federal prison. So you can see how. Um, even though you have people who um, can make a pretty good case that they're at high risk uh, of, of, of um, complications and death from coronavirus, the odds of any one person getting out um, with that argument are very, very low. You've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, hosted by me, Jeff Simmons, and my co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And we're speaking with Beth Schwartzapfel of The Marshall Project. Beth, we've got just a few minutes left. And uh, one of the questions that we have been, Celeste and I have been talking about is, the struggle to get transparency and reliable data on what goes on in prisons. Both of us being uh, in the journalism field know how challenging this can be, even when we think we'll get answers through freedom of information requests, how long that process can take. What trouble spots did you encounter in investigating this issue? Um, You know, it runs the gamut. Some states, um, the prison systems are quite forthcoming and really proud to be extremely transparent about their data. Some states really want to be transparent and just their, the machinery of their data is, is, is not up to the task. And so they'll send us numbers that are old or, you know, it'll take weeks to get information. There are some states sort of more nefariously where um, they are either undercounting or they'll say one thing to us and then they'll post a different thing on their website or, you know, they'll say we have zero infections at our halfway house. Um, and then you talk to people in a halfway house and they're, and they're like, oh, yeah, everybody here is sick. Um, so, you know, you see it all. The thing, the thing that um, is the biggest challenge, I think, when you're trying to track COVID in prisons with regards to data is the, is the states that are not testing enough. Um, it's one of those ironies that um, states that appear to have higher rates may be the ones that are actually being more diligent about testing everyone on a regular basis. For instance, um, the state of Alabama um, has uh, appears to have one of the lowest um, COVID infection rates in the country um, in their prisons. Now, we know the state of Alabama um, has epic overcrowding, 
um, that they've been under um, uh, federal court order. They've been um, ensconced in litigation for over a decade over their poor medical care and their overcrowding. So all of that is to say we know that there, it's probably not true that Alabama has a low COVID infection rate. What's probably more true is that they're just not testing everybody very diligently or very often. Um, and so that's been the biggest challenge as far as getting a handle on what's actually happening on the ground. That's a that's an interesting point. I think that's a, a worthy point. It's the uh, uh, I don't know if I should characterize it this way, but I will since he said it, you know, the sort of the Donald Trump method of uh, of uh, public health uh, statistics keeping. Uh, if you don't do as many tests, you don't have as many cases. Um, then, you know, Beth, like before uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask you if uh, if you do see anything improving uh, in terms of providing care for people who are uh, incarcerated. You had mentioned in your story that the prison population is also sicker than the general U.S. population, which obviously puts people uh, at risk for uh, contracting COVID or, or getting more seriously ill. I think people who listen to BAI are certainly very well aware that there are racial disparities uh, in who gets locked up in this country. But can you just um, for a moment tell us, do you see anything being done to improve healthcare, uh, especially during this pandemic in prisons? Uh, the thing that's been most hopeful to me is in our weekly data collection, just in the last few weeks, we started asking states how many, in addition to how many people are infected, how many people have died of COVID, we've started asking states how many people have gotten vaccinated. And um, to my delight, a handful of states have have given us numbers. There's uh, Rhode Island comes to mind, um, has vaccinated upwards of 100 prisoners for COVID already. And so um, while I certainly wouldn't say that healthcare in any prison in the country is, you know, what any of us would want for ourselves or our loved ones. Um, I am heartened to see that there are prisons around the country that have put prisoners at the front of the line, you know, recognizing that living in congregate settings as they do, being unable to social distance, being wards of the state who are unable to leave, that it's just the right thing to do. Um, so, so I feel, I feel um, heartened to see that. And Beth, we really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, we'd love if you uh, visit the marshallproject.org. If you're interested in criminal justice, we have a number of newsletters um, that are geared towards people who know little but want to know more or all the way up to policy wonks who want like tons of information every day. Um, and I'd love to uh, meet you on Twitter, too. My, my handle is just my last name at Schwartzapple. Great. Beth Schwartzapple of the Marshall Project. Thank you so much for joining Jeff and me today on Driving Forces. Really appreciate it. Thanks to you both for having me. And now we're coming to that part of the show where we're opening up the phone lines. We want to know what you think about coronavirus and vaccines in our prisons. Do you think should be required to take the vaccine? Why or why not? The number to call is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Celeste and I would love to hear from you. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back uh, to hear from you in just a few moments. 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. and scars rushes in like a fallen star through the narrow space between these bars looking down on prison
You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. This is Driving Forces. We are taking your calls, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877 is the number to call. We've been talking about COVID-19, prisons, vaccination. Let us know your thoughts. We have some callers holding right now, so we're going to go to as many of those as we can. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, Joe from New Jersey. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind Hi. today? Not much, but um, considering the population in prisons is probably like 70% black, and they can see that not many of them are getting sick, but they're getting PCR tests sick, which means you're being told you're sick with no symptoms, which is like a crazy thing to believe when you have a flu that's supposed to be so deadly that you could have it and not know with no symptoms and they can just tell you that you have it. But if you think those people in prison have no rights and have to be forced into getting a vaccine that's not only experimental, but has no proof of doing any good whatsoever that has been established and could be so dangerous, that would be the perfect thing to do is to mandate that so we can wake the prisoners up to riot against their conditions as slaves to a prison complex, and they could overthrow the government from within the prisons just by rioting in the prisons. We could get something going because of this. But if you, I mean, who are you people to tell somebody else to put something in their body that's untested? Who are you people? Where did you come from? Okay, well, thank you for your call. We we do appreciate that. We have lots of viewpoints on here. And I don't think that, by the way, uh, certainly uh, not Jeff, uh, nor myself, and certainly not the station is uh, taking some sort of official position demanding people put this or that in their bodies. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about the value and uh, some of the skepticism about the vaccine. I think that, you know, we've seen that uh, there is skepticism about the vaccine. We've also had guests on this program, though, that have strongly encouraged people to believe in the vaccine, to get it, to uh, to not be afraid uh, of, uh, you know, we've seen uh, minimal side effects reported. And look, this is an unusual vaccine process. This has been super expedited, but that's in response to, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in this country dying and more continuing to die. So uh, still taking your calls here, though, let us know what you think. 212-209-2877, 212 Two oh nine two eight seven seven is the number to call. And we're going to go to our next call. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and where are you from? Hi, it's Russell. Russell, welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having the show about the prisoners, Jeff and Celeste. I mean, I feel that, that the call before me was really unleashed. I did want to thank you for bringing the person on, but it's sort of the, the main question I was asking. It was exactly what that irate caller was saying. Do we force the prisoners to to take the vaccine? Well, to me now, the question is mute because my assemblywoman, Linda Rosenthal, is backing a bill that forces all of us to get vaccinated. So I'm sure the prisoners will end up vaccinated, too. But you're, it was very interesting that you said the guards are carrying it in and out. If anyone should be forced to be vaccinated, it's the guards or they should be isolated for a couple of weeks at a time. But, of course, I don't think they should be forced either. But thanks for addressing the issue. I really appreciate it. And my uh, my donation is in the mail. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Russell, for, for calling in. Uh, Russell is one of our uh, reliable listeners, and we do want to hear from you about what kinds of issues you want to hear about on this program, driving forces, uh, you know, always looking to talk about what's on people's minds and to get experts on the program, people who are, are knowledgeable and experienced and have thoughts and opinions. Uh, give us a call, 212-209-2877. We're going to continue with your calls. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yes, my name is Ricky, and I'm calling from Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Can you hear me? Yes? Yeah, I can hear you. Beautiful Brighton Beach. What's going on there today? What's on your mind? Oh, it's quite controversial, Brighton Beach. You want to know what's going on here in Brighton Beach? Let's not get distracted with that. And let's get back on to, uh, yes, why don't they just close all prisons? I've always suggested that. In fact, that's number one on my platform. When I run for mayor of New York City, number one, close all prisons. Number two, 
free shelter for the people, free shelter. Number three, free, free food for the people. Number four, abolish money. Number five, less workers, more poets. And number six, where are the communal farms for the people so they don't have to drop dead and starve and go to prison and in the streets? But let's get back to number one, close all prisons. Why isn't there a move to close all prisons? Me, personally, myself, I would never put any human being into a prison. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, well, it's uh, Jeff. Go ahead. I mean, there's there, there's a lot to unpack there, and uh, uh, you start, Jeff. Oh no! What I w- really was going to say was just given that we are in 2021 and we've got citywide elections. And even our, our, our WBAI colleague, David Brand, just had on a council candidate, uh, former councilman, Tony Avella, who said he's against closing Rikers. You know, I feel like the state of our prisons and closing Rikers is going to still be an issue this year in many of the campaigns and moving ahead. So let's go. I know we've got thank you for your call. Uh, we've got a few other callers on the line. Uh, let's go to the next one. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind today? And also, where are you from? Yes, my name is George. I'm calling from Long Island. And I have um, a few comments to make about the first the um, proposal to be able to forcibly um, detain anybody suspected of having COVID or, 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 or tested positive COVID in New York State. Super alarming. Um, I guess the greatest testament to um, Assemblywoman Rosenthal's proposed bill was that it actually forced um, MAGA representatives and Black Lives Matter representatives to come together in protest for the first time over these four years um, to actually show up outside her apartment and actually chant her down for three hours in opposition to her proposed bill. That's one. And second of all, um, as far as administering this vaccine to anybody against their will would be just the utmost violation of someone's medical freedom uh, and would definitely violate the Nuremberg trials as a result of what happened in Nazi Germany, Germany uh, of um, inflicting medical procedures on unwilling participants. So that's one stance. So I believe that religious medical freedom and also philosophical object, objections should be available for anybody uh, who would be facing this vaccine, but also for prisoners. Um, mm-hmm. Just because they're in prison does not mean they should be subject, subject to experimental medications either. Um, I can understand the prison population does not have the ability to social distance and, and they have those um, definitely they're restricted in their confinement. However, medical freedom and their own autonomy as human beings should still be allowed to them. And if it's against their, their will, then I don't believe it should be administered. If, it, if, if they are willing participants, I think they should. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your call. Really appreciate it. We're talking about uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 vaccines and prisons. Do you think that people who are in prisons uh, who have uh, committed a crime or are uh, doing time for uh, for that reason, should they have to be subjected to getting the vaccine, if not just to protect themselves, but to protect others around them? Uh, give us a call, 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, good evening. My name is Mohammed. I'm from uh, New York. Hi, Mohammed. Uh, I would just like to say this about the vaccines. You know, I've heard a lot of information. I heard from a lot of doctors who were board certified epidemiologists and virologists, and they said that that, vac- that virus is no more. It's a little more deadly because they said they made it up in a laboratory. And they said they mixed the HIV virus in there with it. But the doctors all say that if you're getting your vitamin C, D, and A, and if you're getting your zinc, it pretty much won't bother you. You should be able to throw it off, you know. 
Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Mohammed, for for your call. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt. I'm not trying to prevent anybody from expressing themselves, but I don't think that there has been any evidence to suggest that uh, any other type of virus is being introduced here in a in a lab or otherwise. We are talking about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus and uh, vaccines uh, to prevent its spread, particularly the use of those vaccines and the availability of those vaccines in prison. Uh, I think we can go to our next caller. Hello. And welcome to WBAI. What is on your name and what's on your mind today? Hi, this is Ralph. I was just wondering, um, when did we care so much? When did we start caring so much about everybody? We don't have universal health care in this country, one of the few countries to have it. And you're going to try to convince prisoners that you care about them? If you threw them in jail for not giving them a lousy job that they could have gotten from any kind of street project that we have or any kind of rail project we're going to put up, if they turned into meat, you know, meat storing houses for rich people to get richer off of these prisons, and these people are stupid. You're going to come to them and say, you have to take this for your own good and we're out for your good, as they're locked down 24 hours a day most of the time in those county jails, not, you know, treated like garbage over, like, you know, the pettiest of crimes, pot, you know, selling the Lucy, stuff like this. We're all the millionaires. When people are starting on the street, they cared so much. Why doesn't Murphy and Cuomo throw a couple million dollars out and pay for somebody's meals, pay for somebody's food? What is this all, all in this together stuff? If they had all that money and everybody starved to death, no jobs and everything, how are we all in this together? And how do you expect anybody to believe you people that we're in this together? This is a bad pandemic. You don't know anybody who's dying. But when this PCR test is going to tell you you're sick, and then you've got to believe us, and then you're going to get thrown in jail because you're in the PCR jail now. Cuomo's coming out with an internment camp for sick people because his PCR told, told you you were sick. Then they throw you in with really sick people and kill mm-hmm. you. This is Nazism, well, dude, and you guys are Nazis. That's what Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving us a call. I know we've only got about one minute left. Uh, I believe, Reggie, we have one more call we'll take. So let's go to that final call. Uh, welcome to WBAI. What is your name? What's on your mind? We've only got a minute left. Hello, I'm Miss Diana, and I uh, support BAI. I love BAI because you allow diverse opinions. I I have a little objection. The guy from Brighton Beach that says all prisons should be opened because, believe me, this uh, I've experienced myself violence extreme violence, and those people need to be locked up. Come on. You you do need prisons. They can't let everyone out. But as far as prisoners being forced to be vaccinated, well, they should have right to their own uh, autonomy, their own bodies, you know. They shouldn't be um, a, a lot. They shouldn't be, it shouldn't be inflicted upon them. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I agree no. um, that... We all need to do social distancing as much as possible. I hope they give them masks and everything and better food so they can, you know, be, have a good immune system. But I do know we do need prisons. I'm sorry. These people that say, let them all out. Come on. <laughs> Well, we do. No, we, we, we hear you and we thank you for your call. And we, we also thank you for supporting WBAI. That is actually something that is important to us, to, uh, to me, to Jeff, to the entire station is to support diverse voices and diverse opinions and viewpoints and experiences on the air. It's uh, actually a convenient time to remind you super quick that you can become a BAI buddy and you can support free speech radio here at BAI. You can give us a recurring donation in the name of this program, Driving Forces, or any program you want in any amount you want. But that's so we can keep bringing you real conversations about real issues that affect real people. So you can just go to WBAI.org or you can call 516-620-3602. That's WBAI.org or 516-620-3602. Every donation helps us bring you commercial-free, non-corporate radio, especially during these important times. So we want to thank our guests today, New York City Council member Danny Drum and Beth Schwartzapfel of the Marshall Project. Thanks again to our wonderful engineer, Reggie. Make sure, by the way, to tune in this Sunday for City Watch when I'll be back at 10 a.m. I have been reading this amazing book called Beginners, a fascinating book about learning at a later age, such as mine and Celeste's. Things like juggling and chess and finding out, you know, a little more about ourselves 
along the way. Also joined by Queens Together co-founder Jonathan Forgash and nonprofit Lowdown podcast host Ria Wong. So if you missed any part of this program, you can find it at WBAI.org. In the archives section, you can also check out Driving Forces on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Twitter, and Facebook. We will be back with more Driving Forces soon. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons on WBAI New York. See you on the radio. WBAI's local station board is the Pacifica Foundation Board responsible for advising management and operations. The next meeting of the local station board will be Wednesday, January 13th at 7 p.m. Because of coronavirus precautions and restrictions, the meeting will be a remote access meeting, which will be accessible to the public. It will include an opportunity for the public to comment. This January meeting will also be a delegates assembly to consider WBAI's representatives on the Pacifica National Board this year. Again, that's Wednesday, January 13th at 7 p.m. The meeting held through the Zoom remote meeting service can be accessed by calling in the U.S. 929-205-6099 and entering the meeting ID 922-457-9999. 2995. Again, that telephone number to call is 929-205-6099. And the meeting ID is 922-457-2995. A link to the instructions including listening over the web and how to submit written comments will be available through WBAI's main webpage. If you miss an LSB meeting, you can listen afterwards through the Pacifica posting. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to access the meeting? No, but why not? I peeked in to say Joan Baez singing in 1958 when she was 17. This coming Saturday, she turns 80. So this Thursday night, January 7th, on Folk Radio from 10 p.m. to midnight, it'll be a Joan Baez 80th birthday tribute for the whole show. That's Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight, Folk Radio on WBAI-FM and streaming at WBAI.org. This is the professor, Dr. Ron Daniels. The Institute of the Black World 21st Century's Black Family Summit proudly announces the Community Cares Listening Line for Black first responders and essential workers. We're here and we're listening. The Community Cares Listening Line is a free, confidential service staffed with responsive volunteers who can provide emotional support and share information with our callers. If you're feeling anxious, afraid, distressed, burdened, or overwhelmed by a range of emotions, please call the Community Cares Listening Line at 877-719-1117. That's 877-719-1117.
And a previous program was Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz Martson. And Driving Forces is on Thursdays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News, followed by Justice Matters with Bob Ganji coming up. And if you appreciate what we bring to the table on a regular basis, please consider becoming a financial supporter.